And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. And I hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at the uh, kind of divisive Heisei film, Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla, as well as Marvel Godzilla issue number eight. We've got a great episode lined up for you today. We're taking a look at a pair of episodes from the classic uh, Kyodai Hero Tokusatsu show, Ultraman, taking a look at uh, the next two episodes of that series, as well as the next issue in the Marvel Godzilla comic, which is issue number nine. Uh, but before we get into that, just a couple of bits of news real quick. We are now, as I'm recording this, in the final run-up to the March 10th release date of Kong Skull Island, and I am very excited uh, for this film, being a big King Kong fan, obviously, as well as, of course, another big-screen giant monster movie. A little bit of news uh, that came out about a week and a half ago or so is that the end credits for the film have been released online. And uh, several sources, but I found this first on SciFiJapan.com, found this little tidbit. Down at the very, very bottom, near the end of the credits, there is a line that says, Characters of Godzilla, King Ghidorah, Mothra, and Rodan created and owned by Toho Company Limited. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about what this means, given that this is the first film to start expanding upon uh, what has now been dubbed the Monsterverse over at Legendary Pictures. Some folks think that maybe we'll get a cameo. I doubt we'll get a cameo appearance. I'm thinking more something along the lines of maybe we'll see the um, the names listed on a computer screen or a report or something like that. Maybe something in the modern day, maybe an epilogue or something like that. Uh, Legendary Godzilla, of course, did not have any end credit scenes or anything like that. So I don't know if Skull Island will or not. Uh, it's kind of a crapshoot with films like these nowadays. But uh, we will find out more, obviously, as we come up on that. I'm very excited for that. Very much looking forward to seeing Skull Island and uh, very much champing at the bit for that one. And one other piece of news, um, also movie-related, but a little bit odd for Earth Destruction Directive, because this is an anime, but not a tokusatsu. But it's a super robot anime, so I thought it kind of fit. Tawai has announced a, uh, that they're going to be making a revival of Mazinger Z, this time as a feature film. Now, there's been no real details given at this time, but they have confirmed it will be a feature film, and the tentative title is very creative, Mazinger Z the Movie. Um, Mazinger Z, of course, was the first of the super robots as we really know them and the most popular, one of the uh, far and away most popular animes of all time, and, uh, you know, Mazinger Z himself, clearly one of the upper, upper echelon of uh, super robots and anime uh, icons. And so very cool to see Mazinger Z coming back after 45 years after the original series um, first ran, and uh, looking forward to that. But more information on that as we get it, and... Uh, if I find, depending on what it is, I might end up kicking it over to the guys over at Anime Freaks so they can talk about it as well, because, you know, uh, anime's not just 
saucer-eyed chicks in speed lines. Sometimes there's also giant robots. So. <laughs> so if you have any news about monsters or robots or anything related to what we talk about here on Earth Destruction Directive, go ahead and send that to me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, and I'll be sure to get it on the show. Uh, but for now, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with the first of our two episodes of Ultraman. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to do it. You might want to only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it will be used to you at a particular time. And then if you go out of that it scrambles to uh, a d- and it doesn't d- fast enough, so it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It, do- it really doesn't work well. So I checked. Right. Uh, I checked my. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, my. Pre- it definitely built build me for the hotel for all three of us. Join back to the bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Our first episode today is Ultraman, episode 15, The Terrifying Cosmic Rays, The Appearance of 2D Monster Gavadon. And our episode first aired on October 23rd, 1966 on TBS, Tokyo Broadcasting System. And our story goes a little something like this. In Tokyo, some kids draw a peaceful larva-like monster on a clay pipe and are shocked when the next day it becomes real, brought to life by strange, unknown rays from outer space. The monster, dubbed Gavadon by the kids, really just wants to sleep, but the science patrol is ordered to attack. The assault drives Gavadon away, blasting his tail off, but the monster mysteriously disappears. The kids, emboldened by their drawing coming to life, decide to draw an even cooler Gavadon. The next day, when the sun rises and the cosmic rays return, The more powerful form of Gavadon comes to life as well, but like its earlier form, it only wants to sleep, so the decision is made to leave him alone for the time being. However, his snoring keeps everyone indoors, negatively impacting the Japanese economy. So once again, Science Patrol is called in to attack him. Roused by the attack, Gavadon thrashes about, causing enough damage for for Hayata to change into Ultraman and intervene. But before he can attack the monster, the cries of the children reach his ears as they beg him not to kill Gavadon. Hearing their pleas, Ultraman grabs Gavadon and flies him into space, where the monster's spirit creates a constellation that the children can see every year on Gavadon's birthday. The next day, the members of the Science Patrol ponder if another Gavadon might appear if the strange rays ever return, noting that children will always create and imagine, and nothing can stop that. Okay, so a uh, bit of an unusual episode uh, on this one here. I mean, definitely some of the standard stuff. You know, we've got a monster, we've got Ultraman, but uh, a little bit different and uh, a little bit more um, more kid-focused, but not in a bad way. Uh, so let's just get right into the notes. Uh, at the beginning of the episode, as the kids are drawing on the clay pipes, we see some of the other monsters they draw. They draw Red King, Naranga, and Kanagon, which I thought was neat that uh, these monsters all exist, 
in uh in in the the current universe of Ultraman at this time because of uh, Ultra Q and now Ultraman. So I thought that was an interesting touch. And kids will always draw monsters, even if they are, you know, crazy monsters that attacked the Earth and all that. We also get to see the kids playing baseball at at one point. I think this is uh between the drawing on the pipes and uh, the baseball, we get to see a couple of interesting glimpses into life as a kid in Japan in 1966. You know, this is kind of typical kid stuff. Not that much different than what we'd imagine in America in the same time. So that was just kind of a novel touch. Gavadon A, as he is called, the initial form, he, he's kind of a nondescript tadpole sort of monster, and he's, he kind of inchworms along on the ground. He doesn't have any weapons or anything he can attack with or any any real physical threat. So he's definitely the, as I said, the tadpole-type monster here that's going to evolve into something bigger. Uh, really kind of nondescript, but that's the way that he's drawn initially, is this nondescript kind of tadpole. And uh, But even though he's, like I said, he's like a big tadpole-type monster, he gets a big response as from, you know, they really want to destroy him, and the captain is all for it. In fact, there's a very interesting scene at Science Patrol HQ where Ide and Arashi advise against that, saying that, oh, he's just sleeping. He's not causing any harm. If we leave him alone, you know, if we attack him, it might rouse him and he might cause damage, whereas if we leave him alone, it's not going to do anything. And the captain rejects this out of hand and says, no, our orders are to attack the monster, so we'll attack the monster. And Ide and Arashi, you know, they're... Uh, their objections noted and summarily ignored go along with it. So I thought that was kind of interesting is that, you know, we are in fact seeing the, uh, you know, the start of the idea of, you know, some monsters may or may not, you know, be a threat. And uh, Gavadon's not really much of a threat until he's attacked. And even then it's him just kind of lashing out in response. After the first Gavadon disappears, the kids draw the new one on another pipe. And there's a very neat effect here where, as the sun rises, we see the drawing, the two-dimensional drawing of Gavadon start to become three-dimensional on the pipe. And this is, um, you know, it looks like they've, they've kind of laid maybe some, some latex or something on the pipe and then put some air bladders beneath it so that it's, it's throbbing and coming to life. But it's a very creative effect and one they could have easily kind of left out because they never showed us that happening with the original Gavadon. But for Gavadon B, as he is called... Uh, they they show it to us, and I think it's a nice, uh, a good effect. It, it It's only there for about a minute or so, but it's creative, and it's different than anything I had seen on the show up till this point, as far as something two-dimensional uh, ballooning out to become three-dimensional. Now, with the second Gavadon, they've decided, well, we're going to just let him sleep and not, not rouse him, and, and then this brings up kind of a funny uh, turn of events here, that just by letting him sleep, because he snores so loud, it's negatively impacting the Japanese economy because people can't work, nobody's going out to shop, and, you know, above, above all things, we got to keep the economy throbbing along. So they uh, they are ordered, once again, not to let them sleep, just let them attack. I just thought it was a, a strange motivation, but a realistic one, you know. The, um, the fact that the economy is taking a sudden nosedive because there's a giant monster sleeping in the middle of Tokyo... You know, it makes sense. So you you would imagine if there was some giant thing and everybody stayed indoors, suddenly sales would be going down, productivity would be going down all across the board. And you know, in a, in a major city like Tokyo, that's some real impact. So I thought that was uh, that that was an amusing touch. At one point, Ide suggests that maybe they should just clean up the graffiti, the the drawings that the kids made, and that that would stop. You know, that that he wouldn't come back the next day, and the captain 
says, no, we're not doing that. The science patrol doesn't clean graffiti. And, 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 you know, he says, no, we're going to stay on and be the, we're going to fight them. So about this time I started, it started dawning on me. Cap is, he's the grown up that always says no. This episode, I said, is dominated by the kids and their, you know, desires to, to see their monster come to life and all that. And he's the guy who says, no, 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 no. That's the way kids always see grownups, is we're the ones that always say, no, slow down, you know, uh, put that down. As, 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 you know, as Jerry Seinfeld says, as a kid, it's always up. Wait up, hold up, shut up. When as a, uh, as a grownup, it's slow down, quiet down, you put that down. Everything is down. <laughs> hey, wait up! Wait up! That's what kids say. They don't say wait. They say, wait up! Hey, wait up! Because when you're little, your life is up. The future is up. Everything you want is up. Wait up. Hold up. Shut up. (laughs) Mom, I'll clean up. Let me stay up. (laughs) Parents, of course, are just the opposite. Everything is down. Just calm down. (laughs) Slow down. Come down here. Sit down. Put that down. But that's kind of Cap's role in this episode, is he's the one that says, put that down all the time. And, uh, you know, but he, he's wrong on all these accounts. Where it's like, we could have left him alone and not attacked the original one. Then he probably would have gone away once the uh, the drawing washed away. So, but, you know, again, they, they say no, they don't do that. So Cap just doesn't seem to get it in this episode. I guess you could say parents just don't understand. Now, during the finale, when they're attacking Agavadon, the Science Patrol is getting ready to fire at him, and the kids stand in their way and block them from doing it, which is, you know, it's not really kids in jeopardy, but pretty much so. It's a very strong statement from, uh, from the kids uh, by, the, by, the, by the script here that they're willing to stand in the way and say, no, don't shoot, don't shoot Gavadon. So I thought that was, you know, for an episode that's been kind of lighthearted, that was a pretty, um, you know, pretty serious moment. And it's effective because, you know, really the kids love Gavadon because he's their monster and he hasn't hurt anyone. He hasn't destroyed any buildings or attacked anything. So don't kill him. Don't kill him. And they, they plead with the science patrol and they all try to get him out of the way. And, you know, uh, when Hayata turns into Ultraman, he hears their pleas. And, you know, Ultraman is not, not merciless. I think we'll see that more as the series goes on from the other Ultra heroes is that, you know, um, Sometimes you have monsters, and a lot of times you have monsters that need to be destroyed because they're rampaging monsters. But sometimes monsters are are just they don't fit in, and they don't they're not necessarily a threat on purpose, but they could be a threat because of their size or their powers or or just because they're they're not part of of the human world. And so his merciful actions here, I really like that he just takes him out into space and Gavadon's spirit because now he's away from, he's not getting bombarded with the same cosmic rays. His spirit lives on and becomes a constellation. And he comes and talks to the kids and says, you can see me, you know, every year on the, on the day of my birth. So I thought that was nice and that they don't, they don't kill, Ultraman doesn't kill Gavadon. You know, he, he listens to the cries for mercy and he's merciful. And I thought that was really nice because Ultraman is, you know, again, he, he is a defender of humanity, but you know, monsters are living things too, and they deserve our compassion when they are, you know, sometimes when they are themselves the victims. Here, Gavadon is, just wants to sleep and rest, but, you know, he gets attacked repeatedly, so he, he lashes out. So I, I, I like that bit quite a lot. 
I also like the very bit at the end where the science patrol is walking through the, I don't know if it's a school playground or just a parking lot where all the kids, and there's dozens and dozens of kids all drawing with their chalk on the blacktop. And if you have kids, and, I, and you know, my kids at the right age, you know that that drawing with chalk on the driveway is a, is a popular activity once the weather turns nicer out here, usually around um, Easter time. Once it hits spring, we start breaking out the chalk to draw on the, the driveway regularly on the weekends. And they're all drawing it, and they're all looking around saying, well, what if the rays come back? Any one of these could become another Gavadon. And the captain doesn't have an answer for that. You know, it's like kids' imagination and kids' creativity, you can't stop that. And you wouldn't want to stop that. So he he kind of just has this look of, um, you know, he's not nothing he can do. He's kind of got some, uh, you know, he's, he's unsure of himself and unsure of how to respond to that. It's like, well, I guess if there's another one, they'll deal with it, but... I, I like that. It's kind of a kind of a bittersweet ending. Is that yeah, you know uh, they 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 took care of the monster. They didn't kill him as uh, benevolent as Gavadon. The next monster might be you know somebody more like Red King or Naranga, like we saw at the beginning. So um, overall, this is kind of an unusual episode, and it has its focus on a non-violent monster, and it has a focus on children, but not in a kiddie sort of way. It definitely focuses on the children as. Uh, as acting as kids, not necessarily getting access to uh, high-level government and military installations as children, but instead behaving like children. So I don't mind the kiddie aspects of this uh, in that sense. Gavadon himself is, he's an alright monster, but his origin is really the thing that's most memorable about him. I mean, even the powered-up version is still kind of floppy and, you know, kind of, he's not, doesn't have any uh, any great shakes from a design standpoint. It's more his origin and the fact that he was a, a children's drawing brought to life that most people remember about Gavadon. Still, all that said, the storyline alone makes this one definitely worth watching. I said a lot of people might be turned off to this because it's, uh, you know, an air quotes up to the microphone kitty episode, but I wouldn't let that stop you because I think this is a, a very cool episode and kind of a change of pace here in the, the front half of the Ultraman series, not just a, um, you know, not, not a standard fight the monster, you know, you know, specium ray after 24 minutes or whatever, uh, but it's still a creative and, and put well put together episode. Now, what's interesting is normally I would say you can watch this on Shout Factory TV. Well, I checked it before recording earlier today, and as of today that I'm recording this, neither Ultraman nor Ultra 7 nor Ultra Q are on Shout Factory TV any longer. And I know that they are not on Hulu anymore either, so I don't know what the deal is with that. They were there as of a couple of weeks ago, uh, but now they have moved on. So if you want to watch this, I know you can um, buy the season through like Amazon Prime or something like that. I would still recommend the Mill Creek DVD set, which has the complete series for like six or seven bucks on Amazon. It's probably your best bet. But um, but that's all about all I've got on Gavadon. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with the second episode of Ultraman here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman will be right back after these messages. Does gambling control your entire life? When you wake up in the morning, is your first thought about your first bet of the day? Do you hide your gambling from your family? Has gambling impacted your work, your home life, and your well-being? If you answered yes to these questions. Come on down to Buckaroo Bob Silver Dollar Casino and Saloon! 
We've got blackjack, poker, roulette, craps, backrush, Amanda Fair, bingo, kino, sportsbook, OTB, and slots, slots, slots for your gaming pleasure. We're open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, so you don't have to sneak away from your job or family to get in on the action. Come check out our full-service, all-you-can-eat saloon so you never have to leave. And be sure to make some time for the Buckaroo Gals Hoop-Dee-Doo Review, the wildest cabaret show in the Old West. Yee-haw, it's a gamer's paradise here at Buckaroo Bob's. So if gambling is your life, then head on over to Buckaroo Bob's Silver Dollar Casino and Saloon, conveniently located off of State Road 23 on the frontage road. Turn left at the Discount Bait and Tackle Adult Cigarette Gift Emporium outlet and follow the sides to fun Buckaroo Bob's, where the only gambling problem is when you run out of chips. Be there! Ultraman. All right, our second episode of Ultraman today is Ultraman episode 16, Science Patrol into Space, the appearance of Balton Sajin. And this episode first aired October 30th, 1966 on TBS. And our story goes like this. The rocket ship Otori is flying to Venus, piloted by its creator, Dr. Mori. The trip is going well, even broadcasting live images back to the Science Patrol on Earth, when things take a sudden turn for the worst. The rocket is invaded by a Balton alien. The Balton dominates Mori's mind and makes him a slave, using him as a tool to bring the remaining Baltons, who have been shrunk down to microscopic size and living on an unknown planet dubbed Planet R, to Earth to finish their conquest. The Science Patrol, unaware of this, scramble the only other rocket capable of reaching Venus, Professor Iwamoto's Phoenix, and unwittingly fall into the Balton's trap. On Earth, the invasion begins as countless man-sized Baltons attack, with Arashi leading the defense of Earth with an upgraded jet VTOL and Ide's Mars-133 gun. Out in space, Hayata and the rest of the patrol have been trapped on Planet R, where they face the gigantic Balton II. Hayata changes to Ultraman and engages, only to find that they that the Baltans have developed a new barrier which reflects the specium ray. Thinking fast, Ultraman uses an ultra slash attack, slicing Balton II in half down the middle. Still trapped on planet R, Ultraman uses a never-before-seen power, teleportation. However, this uses a lot of energy, and there are still thousands of Baltans left to fight on Earth. The aliens all begin to merge, forming another giant Balton, and having caught on to the Ultra Slash, deploy yet another barrier, which reflects the Ultra Slash attack harmlessly. Running low on energy, Ultraman uses his X-ray eye beams to dissipate the barrier and quickly fires one last Ultra Slash, bisecting the giant Balton and causing the remaining aliens to retreat. After picking up the stranded science patrollers from Planet R, the day is finally saved. So this is the first time in this series that we get a monster returning within this same series. We had already seen Ragon return from Ultra Q, but this is the first time that an actual monster, or in this case alien, from Ultra Man reappears. And unsurprisingly, it's the Balton who are um, 
The way I always hear it described is the Bolton are kind of like the Daleks are to Doctor Who. They're the most common and most popular and most well-known enemy of uh, of our hero. And so the Boltons reappear uh, many, many times across the uh, the series, especially once we got into uh, past the original show of shows, the Boltons started showing up quite a lot. And now on the current shows, uh, starting with Ultraman Ginga and rolling forward, a lot of the aliens... Uh, Valky, uh, no, Valky Sajin and Bolton Sajin and Magma Sajin. A lot of the aliens show up, uh, quite a lot. So they've been using them and they're still very popular with, uh, with audiences. So let's, let's get right into our notes. Uh, Dr. Maury's astronaut suit appears to be the same style of suit, which was used in Monster Zero, only it's a different color. The suits of Monster Zero were a bright orange and here it's kind of a, 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 a bluish gray. The helmet, however, the white helmet with the padding looks to be identical. So I got a feeling that it probably is a recycled helmet prop uh, that Subaraya had laying over from the end of Monster Zero, which was uh, right around this time. So that makes sense. Speaking of uh, Dr. Mori, he flies through space underneath his spacesuit wearing a three-piece suit because it's the 1960s and that's what you do. I mean, you're going to be visiting Venus. What else are you going to wear? You know, you gotta got to dress to the best. You know, dress for the job you wish you had, which apparently is like space businessman. But uh, I just thought that was funny, just kind of an odd, an odd touch. Um, when the um, when the Bolton takes over Maury's mind, he uses what we call the fly eye effect. You know, where it's all the images swirling around like a compound eye. And every time I see this, I'm always reminded of the joke from an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000, where um, I think it's a Joel episode. Because it's, it's got to be a Joel episode because it's Professor Forrester and TV's Frank. So it's most likely a Joel episode. They call down to, to, um, uh, to, the, to the, the Mads and they are still going over their production notes with Jerry and Sylvia with the, uh, with the mole people. And Dr. Forrester is talking over the script. He's like, can we get the fly eye effect on this? You know, like the beginning of Family Affair. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. Uh, now, do you have that that prism lens effect, that fly eye thing we talked about? Uh, you know, like at the beginning beginning of Family Affair, that that kind of thing. We'll do that here. All right. <laughs> so as soon as I saw it, it's like, oh, I see. It's like the beginning of Family Affair. As soon as the Bolton uh, broke that out, I, I understand that joke may be pretty obscure. Uh, but you know, th- this is where my mind jumps to sometimes when I'm watching stuff like this. So, so there you have it, for good or for ill. Uh, Ide gets to do some upgrades on the, uh, the jet VTOL and the weaponry this time out using a new engine that Professor Iwamoto makes. Ide puts what's called a hydro grate engine on the jet VTOL, which makes it super duper fast and is able to, to dash all around and fly out into space. He also breaks out the Mars 133 gun, which is a long barreled rocket pistol. And this was, we would see E-Day do this uh, again in the series. This becomes kind of his uh, calling card. He is still the comic relief, but anytime a new weapon or tool is developed, it's E-Day is the one who breaks it out and gets to show it off as we get to see in loving details. He pulls the Mars 133 out and assemble it and uh, show everybody how it fires. And then later we see, of course, Arashi being the weapons expert, being the one firing it. And his jet VTOL has a little firing port which we've never seen before, so that he can put the Mars-133 out and shoot at the Bolton. So I thought that was a nice touch, and continuing the trend of introducing new new hardware and new tools for uh, our Science Patrol uh, members to use in their never-ending fight. This episode definitely portrays the Boltons 
more as alien invaders than space ninjas like they were on their first episode back way back in episode two. But they still are kind of devious space ninjas here at the same time. So it still kind of works. You know, their invasion is based on, um, you know, deceit and misguiding the earthlings so that they'll be in the right place. They take over the mind. They dominate the mind of an earthling in order to use them. You know, they're, they're going to split up their foes. So they're very devious. And that's kind of the main um, descriptor and adjective I always think of with the Boltons is that they're devious. So that kind of fits in with the, the ninja routine, even though they don't get to use their ninja magic per se in this particular episode. I still think they act very much like a, uh, like an evil ninja. So the name still fits. Um, as they, as the Boltons are invading on earth, it's interesting. They fly like a jet formation. They fly in like a wing with all the man sized Boltons. And obviously this is done so that you can see them on screen and that you can see there's large numbers of them flying in formation. But I just thought it was kind of funny that even aliens understand the concept and the tactical advantage of flying in a wing formation rather than just coming at you piecemeal. So, and they move and maneuver like a, uh, like a group of jets. So I thought that was a nice touch. Uh, on planet R, as Ultraman engages with the gigantic Bolton 2, there's a nice gag where the, the possessed uh, Dr. Mari jumps behind a rock outcropping and then out from behind it stands up the gigantic Bolton too. It's a nice uh, um, use of a gag where he dunks behind something that's in one optical uh, or it's in one film element and then another film element is printed behind it with, you know, the uh, the scale um, of, of the same rock with Bolton 2 standing up. So I thought that was neat. During the fight, they break out their Spellman barrier, which will uh, reflect the Specium Ray. And this looks a lot like the fire mirror from Godzilla vs. Biolanti, which you may remember was the main weapon on the Super X2 in that film. It was an, a mirror created of artificial diamonds that would reflect Godzilla's atomic breath. Well, it's the same idea here some 33 years or so before, or yeah, no, nah, 23 years, excuse me, some 23 years before they broke it out in Godzilla vs. Biolanti, making a barrier that can reflect back the main attack. So it definitely looks like the fire mirror uh, much like the fire mirror, it's ultimately disabled and then the, uh, or bypassed. In this case, the fire mirror is actually melts. That's how hot the atomic breath gets here. Uh, Ultraman uses, switches tactics and uses the ultra slash to cut, uh, Bolton two in half from stem to stern. It's actually a very neat effect because he's jumping through the air and he throws the ultra slash, which looks like a buzzsaw blade. And it actually just cuts him right down the middle. And, you know, Boltons have got those two pointy to uh, pieces on the top of their head right between them, right down their body and right out. And these two halves split apart. So very cool effect. And if you liked it, just wait. You'll see it again in a few minutes. Um, during the invasion itself on Earth, we do get some stock footage. Now, primarily, this is from the Pestar episode from a few episodes back uh, and is made up of the... Uh, all the tanks at the refinery exploding and all the fire effects. Now, normally I'm not big on, on stock footage, but two things to consider here. One, this is a TV show, not a movie. Stock footage is going to happen. You know, you don't have the budget, especially in an ambitious episode like this that had a lot of stuff going on as far as spaceships and new models and stuff like that. So you're going to have to use some. And, and that said, the stock footage that they use is actually quite nice. You'll remember that I really enjoyed... Uh, the effects footage of the uh, the refinery uh, being uh, blown up and everything else and all the fire effects that were used in the Pestar episode. So seeing them again is not unwelcome in this case. 
uh, even if they are um, stock footage. On Planet R, Ultraman uses a uh, heretofore unseen power, which is teleportation. And this this kind of reminded me of you know how Superman in the uh, Silver Age would sometimes come come up with new powers just to get out you know depending on what the story required him to do. Super ventriloquism immediately comes to mind, but you know it's not unheard of that he would be able to do this. I mean, it makes sense. And the idea that it uses a ton of power, which is why he doesn't use it all the time, also makes sense. Um, and I like that it, the stakes are very high because they realize, well, I can't, I don't have enough time to fly from Venus to Earth while the Baltans are attacking, so I've got to take this chance, even though it's going to leave me very weak for the battle against the Baltans. So I thought that was a nice touch, even if, you know, I'm, I'm usually not one who likes a brand new power coming out of nowhere. And I don't really remember him really using this again. I'll have to keep an eye out for it. Nothing jumps to mind immediately of Ultraman using the teleportation power in this series. But I guess we'll find out as we as we move our way through here. Um, but you know, it's it's still it, it was neat and it made it did explain the story and it did raise the stakes a bit already in a in a, uh, a tough position having to fight the whole Bolton invasion army. Now he's got to deal with it with uh, with some reduced power set. When he uses, Ultraman uses the Ultra Slash to fight the second giant Bolton, it's the exact same bisection footage um, uh, used again. Again, you know, you make do with what you got. It looked cool the first time, we can use it again. And, you know, probably was going to be hard to show it in a different way that wasn't going to be uh, either cheesy or graphic, so let's go ahead and use it, um, use it again. So, like I said, it was cool the first time. It's kind of funny seeing it again in the same episode, but those are some of the realities of doing a low-budget uh, science fiction television show, is that you have got to, uh, you know, use what you can as far as stock footage. So This episode is kind of more what I expect from the Baltans than we got in their first episode, which is to say a full-on alien invasion epic. The use of stock footage is a bit of a bummer, but, you know, it's a reality when you're making this type of show. And at least the stock footage that they use is good and appropriate stock footage, so I don't mind that much. And, you know, that, that comes with the territory. And with, but with the various rockets going into space and aliens attacking the Earth, it reminds me kind of like a scaled down version of a Toho space opera, like uh, as the aforementioned Monster Zero. And if you're going to do that on 22 minutes and a TV budget, more power to you. I mean, that's just a great, uh, you know, a, a great bit of ambition. And they pull it off for the most part. It's a good episode and it's a lot of fun. It's got a classic ultra villain in the Baltans and they really come off really well. They're menacing and devious and, you know, they, they, you know, make all these attacks on Earth, and, you know, we've got a great sequence of Arashi flying around, dogfighting them all. We get two, albeit short, but two monster fights with the Ultraman fighting a giant Bolton. So, overall, it's a good episode. I heartily recommend this one. Both of them are good episodes this time out. Uh, as with the previous episode, this is, as of right now, not available for streaming on ShoutFactoryTV.com or on Hulu. So, if you want to check this out, uh, you can probably check out Amazon Prime Video or pick up the uh, Mill Creek DVD set, and uh, give this one uh, a look. I think you'll enjoy it. All right, well, that about covers us for today on Ultraman. I'm going to take a quick break, and we will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Eons past, a monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But, awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. 
Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla number nine was cover dated April 1978, released on or about January 3rd, 1978. This information, of course, comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics at DCIndexes.com. Our cover is by Herb Trimpey, and it shows uh, Godzilla smashing his way down the Las Vegas Strip coming out of a, a wall of water behind him. More on that in a minute. And uh, if you had told me that uh, Godzilla, Marvel Godzilla was going to feature a cover of Godzilla destroying Las Vegas, this is about what I would imagine it would look like. It's We see the signs getting smashed. We see people running, carrying money. We see the uh, Las Vegas Police Department firing back at him. All in all, a very fun cover. I like this one. Um, it's uh, definitely of, a, of, of the style we would expect for this series. Our writer is Doug Mensch. Our penciler is Herb Trimpey. Our inker is Fred Keita. Letterer is Rick Parker. Colorist, Mary Titus. Our editor is Archie Goodwin. And our title is The Fate of Las Vegas. And our synopsis comes from marvel.wikia.com. Godzilla has just arrived outside of Las Vegas and has attacked Hoover Dam, the resulting torrent washing Godzilla towards the city of Sin, which entices the creature with its shining lights. Meanwhile, in the city, Winslow Bettett, local schlub, has only one dime left and a choice. Use it to call his wife or put it in the slots in hopes of winning riches, which may pay for the medical treatment of his mother. As Winslow's luck begins to change and he wins at the slots and lets it ride, uh, Godzilla strikes the city and the Godzilla squad prepares to mobilize out to the area. But the behemoth is still damaged from its last encounter and can only muster very limited speed. Soon, the rest of Hoover Dam cracks open, causing a torrential flood that decimates the city, causing Winslow to lose his riches. While Godzilla leaves the city for a more peaceful locale, Winslow's riches have been washed away except for one last dime. This time, he chooses to call his wife, who, as we find out, has left him, after his latest gambling binge, some three years after his mother has died. Next issue... The creation of a colossal new monster, perhaps even mightier than Godzilla himself, Yetrigar. This this was a, a fun a fun issue, really. A, you know, an interesting kind of take on a character-driven story in a Godzilla comic from the Bronze Age, where you know there is that requisite amount of uh, of action and uh, citywide destruction, but kind of looking at it on a more personal scale. So I thought this was pretty neat. So let's get right into it. Uh, our cover, as I said, is a very fun image. Um, I do like the use of the floodwaters in there because it does give a hint to the, uh, the destruction of Hoover Dam and the, the flood res resulting thereof. So I thought that was pretty neat. So I, I like to give Trippy credit for this cover. Page one is our splash page. Has Godzilla walking directly up to uh, Hoover Dam and punching it with his right hand, causing a, uh, a large uh, tractor-trailer truck to fall off with the packages falling out the back, which is pretty interesting. Um, I do like that we get the sense of scale here with both Godzilla and Hoover Dam because these are 
um, both really, really big things. You know, we don't quite, you forget sometimes just how big Hoover Dam is unless you're actually there seeing it, but it's a gigantic man-made structure, and obviously Godzilla is gigantic also, so I like the, the size relative uh, for, the, uh, for these two next to each other. Very cool. We got a guy, obviously a tourist, because he's wearing a bucket hat on the bottom, going, Godzilla, I tell you, it's Godzilla. And it's like, well, yes, obviously it's Godzilla. After he just, uh, you know, attacked Seattle and then San Francisco and now, uh, you know, his whole thing with Red Ronin the last few issues, everybody would know who Godzilla is. We wouldn't need this guy telling us. Um, now, also interesting is that all throughout this comic, Hoover Dam is referred to as Boulder Dam. And, uh, you know, that's kind of been a back and forth thing over the years is whether it's Hoover Dam or Boulder Dam, you know, obviously it was commissioned as Hoover Dam, but by the time it was finished, it was during Roosevelt's uh, presidency, so they wanted to call it Boulder Dam, and that name didn't really stick, and it goes back and forth to the point that there's a joke later on in here about that very, uh, about the naming specifically. Okay, turning over to page two, panel one, we get a shot of the top of Hoover Dam with Godzilla clawing at it, with uh, the giant cracks starting to appear in it as all the tourists run for their lives. Now this is very kind of interesting to me because not too long ago my wife and I watched the film San Andreas and there is a scene in the first half of that film that is pretty much exactly this. I mean obviously Godzilla's not there but it's with the Hoover Dam being destroyed by a tremor uh, with the cracks forming on it and all that and it's even shot even kind of the same angle looking around the bend from the top of Hoover Dam. So that, that was pretty cool because it, it again like in this comic after Hoover Dam was destroyed, there's a massive flood that shoots down the plane towards Las Vegas. It doesn't. We don't actually see it destroy Las Vegas, uh, because I don't think it quite reaches it. But same idea, so I thought that was pretty neat. Speaking of which, the flood um, on pages 2 and 3. This is a very, to me, very Showa-era sort of sequence. The idea that as powerful as these monsters are, nature ultimately is even more powerful. I doubt Toho would let Godzilla be overpowered by floodwaters after... You know, 1984, Godzilla, Return of Godzilla, Godzilla 1985, that era. Because, you know, we still have Godzilla being trapped in a volcano in that film. But after that, I don't think they'd let him be shown being overpowered by nature. But here in the in the late 70s, yeah, I can buy that. It makes sense to me. Uh, turning over to pages 6 and 7, this is where we are introduced to Winslow Bedett. Um, who is, uh, you know, on his bender, you can tell he's unshaven, his tie is... Uh, undone, his shirt collar is unbuttoned. We get the juxtaposition of Godzilla and Winslow and the decisions that they have to make. From a storytelling standpoint, I like how Mensch frames this sequence and he applies the tools of the, the decisions that the characters make in order to tell it. Trimpy's art for Winslow, it's a little cartoony. He almost looks a little bit kind of like Shaggy in a couple of pages, but... It's clean and it's clear and it serves its purpose, so I can't really fault it. Even It's not obviously as good as the monster in action sequences, but it's still pretty cool. So I'm on board with that. Over on page 10, after getting a, an earful from Rob Takaguchi and then Professor Takaguchi, all I can say is you go, Dum Dum Duggan, because he has had enough of this crap. And he says, uh, and uh, after... You know, uh, Professor says, besides, there's little we can do about it, talking about uh, Robert being the guy that can pilot Red Ronin. He says, little we can do about it. For one thing, we can do without that blasted giant robot, period. Any hunk of junk that won't work for anyone but a snot-nosed punk ain't worth beans. You understand? No more robot, and that's an order. You go. Awesome. Put them, put those, you know, lay the smack down, because 
You know, I, I understand again, oh, well, he's imprinted on it, oh, and maybe having a child is a good thing because he has a pure heart of innocence. Like, look, we're trying to defend the country from a giant monster. We don't need some friggin' preteen kid in there screwing things up. It's like, we, uh, you know, because he thinks he's smarter than all these guys, so good on him. And, and you know, screw you, Rob Takaguchi. That's all I have to say about that. Uh, pages 11 and 14, they're broken up by a two-page ad in the middle. More juxtaposition of the two stories. Um, there's a low-level uh, thug of a gangster uh, standing outside the Casino Royale, which, which is pretty funny in its own right. But he sees Godzilla walking up right as, on the other side of the strip, Winslow hits the three cherries in the slot machine and wins. So the, the thug pulls out the gun and shoots Godzilla right between the eyes, uh, which prompts Godzilla to uh, tail-chop the Royale and light it on fire with atomic breath. But this made me, of course, think of the cop in The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, who immediately, uh, when he sees the Retosaurus, pulls out his gun and starts his service revolver and starts shooting. Because, you know, no, no monster's running loose in my town, pal, you know. So that, that, that just amused me. Um, on page 16, the rest of the Hoover Dam breaks, and it goes, Bakum is our automatopoeia. Which I liked, because it's like the opposite of Kaboom, which is an explosion. Well, this is, you know, a dam cracking, so clearly it's Bakum! And we see all the, the floodwaters pouring out over the uh, the remains of, uh, of Hoover Dam. Godzilla causing quite a lot of collateral damage just by uh, punching that dam one time when you get right down to it. Now, on page 17, panel 4, I'm not sure whether this was intentional or not. I'm going to read it to you, and I'll let you guys uh, form your own opinions. Um, Gabe, um, uh, Gabe Jones runs up and tells Dum 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 Boulder Dam or Hoover Dam or whatever the heck they call it has just been busted wide open. And, uh, so they're, then they're gonna, they're mobilizing and Dum Dum turns to Tamara and Rob and says, now listen and listen good. I want you to shackle that kid to a Saturday morning TV set or something. I don't care what you do, but just keep him away from that overgrown tin can you call Red Roman. Roman. R-O-M-A-N. Now... Previously, Dum Dum had called the robot Red Ronin, I'm pretty sure. So is he calling it Red Roman? Is that a mistake or is that intentional? I'm leaning towards intentional because um, the words are actually, uh, the letters are bolded and italicized. So obviously he got some attention. So I think it's him making a, you know, kind of putting down the machine, you know, because uh, he doesn't care the fact that it's Red Ronin or whatever. He's, he's just calling it whatever he wants and kind of putting down Tamara and Rob at the same time. So I'm okay with that. Um, what do you guys think? Let me know. It's, I'm kind of kind of curious about that. Further on down the page, panel 6, as Godzilla makes his way continually smashing through the strip, we see a guy running with a handful of greenbacks. And my money! I left half my money in there! Which is uh, kind of a typical response, but sometimes a typical response is the correct response. So that one was, uh, that was pretty, I, that made me smile because you expect that, you know, in Vegas. You know, uh, you don't want to lose your money just because a giant uh, lizard comes stomping through. I mean... Geez, nobody wants that. But uh, so I thought that was that was a nice little little throwaway gag here. Uh, page twenty-three, as the second set of floodwaters goes uh, right over the uh, the the where the first one reached and continues on and hits uh, Las Vegas. Um, we see this is a as I said, it's a full page splash of Godzilla getting knocked over and tumbling forward by the wall of water from this flood, which is uh, taller as tall as he is, honestly. And as you can see it throwing cars and debris off the buildings around like uh, like toys. 
as Godzilla is, is shoved forward. Uh, my brother would say that Godzilla is going ass over tea kettle here. This is pretty much what he looks like. Cause, and he's got this really shocked, like, what? Look on his face as he's doing it. This is a, this is a pretty cool splash because it's like, again, putting over just how powerful this flood is. If it's able to take Godzilla and toss him around, you know it's got to be, uh, about to be some strong stuff right there. Over on, um, page 26, uh, panels one through three. Um, this is, uh, this is an interesting bit of symmetry because in panel one, now these take up about a little under half the, uh, the height of the page. It's three panels all in a row, uh, taller than they are long. And in the, uh, the first panel, we see Winslow winning at the roulette table and he's throwing his hands in the air yelling, Yahoo, I did it, mom, I did it. So he's calling out with his hands up in the air. And then the middle panel is the, the, uh, the croupier pushing all of the, uh, the chips and coins towards Winslow with the top of the stick kind of being right in the middle of the panel, almost like an axis of symmetry. Because in the third panel, Godzilla is also crying out with his hands up in the air and his mouth agape open because he's being shoved down the street by the floodwaters, which are also pushing cars and knocking everything else out of the way. So it's, it's an interesting bit of symmetry here of them both throwing their hands up in the air. Considering how juxtaposed the story has been up until this point, I kind of believe that this was intentional, but still pretty subtle, especially in a book, again, starring Godzilla from 1978. Uh, page 27, panels 1 through 3, uh, the top half of the page here. As Godzilla is uh, finally free of the floodwaters, he just immediately lets loose with a torrent of atomic breath, just attacking any of the rubbish... Excuse me attacking any of the rubble and anything around him that he can. Really nice character bits for Godzilla from Trimpy here because you see kind of the rage in his face and then kind of the, the confusion and, and almost a little bit of exhaustion. He's, he's just, just too tired to deal with this crap. And then finally he turns and uh, walks away towards the wilderness of the desert uh, with his tail dragging behind him as it should. So a very, very cool little, little sequence of panels here. Um, uh, a nice ending for Godzilla in this story even as we get a, a not-so-nice ending for Winslow over on page 30 and 31 as we are, find out the sad fate of Winslow Bennett. And he calls his wife on the phone and says, Hello, Marsha, you, you'll never believe what happened. I, well, all the money's gone, yes. Yes, everything. But I had to do it, Marsha. Mother is counting on me. We hear Marsha over the line say, Winslow, you're in Las Vegas again, aren't you? You've gone off on another one, haven't you? This is the last straw, Winslow. I'm leaving you. You know very well your mother died three years ago. So, a little bit of a, a twist, uh, but I did like that. And then uh, it continues on, and Winslow says, Yes, but, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be home soon, Marsha. Goodbye. And the operator cuts in and says, This is the operator. That will be an additional $1.35, sir. And he says, um, Reverse the charges, operator. And he takes his dime, and he starts heading back home, but... Even as he's heading back home, he says, uh, it'll be a long walk, but I've got nothing left except time. Say, now that I've got my last dime back, maybe I should make one last stop in Reno. After all, mother's counting on me. So, uh, you know, like I said, it, the, the sad fate of one poor dude in Vegas on the day that, you know, his luck intersects with Godzilla. It was, I, I liked it from a storytelling standpoint. I thought it was pretty clever. And, uh, you know, if you're going to tell a, a character-driven story, sometimes, you know, monsters don't care about our motivations and our interests and our concerns they have their own and uh, to have them crash together like this I, I thought was was pretty good so i like this issue and uh, as always it's been collected in essential godzilla so if you have that you can read it uh what did you guys think why don't you send in some thoughts and let me know about that uh taking a look real quick at um ads 
nothing nothing really stands out with one exception this month. Now, we do have the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew t-shirts. Um, I never really read the Hardy Boys, but my oldest boy loves them now. He's been reading them a lot from the library, so that makes me smile. Uh, we got two different Star Wars merchandise um, uh, ads, which is not surprising considering. Uh, we even get the uh, Pizzazz subscription ad with the... Uh, um, with, with the hand-drawn cover of the of the of R2 and 3PO on there, which is which is pretty good. But we got this one house ad. It's a full-page house ad right near the middle of the book, which I think is super appropriate for this uh, for this issue and this episode and this podcast. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read it to you because a little something like this. Back in the days of the prehistoric past, before the fall of the great lizards, there walked a creature the likes of which the world had never seen. He strode through the Valley of Flame, where monsters dwell, a giant red-scaled demon known as Devil Dinosaur. His only companion, the young Dawn Man, Moon Boy, a daringly different creation from Jack King Kirby. Don't miss the first collector's item issue, on sale now. And yes, yeah, so you get this great image of Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy by Kirby as he's you know stomping on some fallen trees, roaring at uh, what looks to be a, a ceratops of some kind just off the uh, just off the panel. We just see its uh, nose and horn uh, sticking on the, the onto the page. And my history with Devil Dinosaur goes all the way back to when I first started comics because when I was a little kid, I remember my family and I we went on vacation in Train Country in Pennsylvania, and at one point we ended up at this old antique shop. And probably looking for tin railroad signs. My dad, uh, my dad's a big railroad guy, so he's got a, his, a room filled with tin railroad signs all over the walls. So They're very cool. Um, and they had comics, and I remember my brother got a few issues of GI Combat, and I think of where, where monsters roam, maybe, or where creatures dwell. One of the, the reprint Marvel monster books, and I got uh, Devil Dinosaur number two. And I didn't know anything about, you know the creators of comics back then. I didn't know who Jack Kirby was. I didn't know anything about Double Dinosaur, but just seeing all that great Jack Kirby art, uh, energetic, dynamic stuff of Devil Dinosaur fighting. I think he fights a giant spider in that issue, if I'm remembering right. And, uh, you know, so this really made an impression on me, and it wasn't until I got older and I got into college, really, that I started tracking the rest of it down, and I eventually got the hardcover that Marvel put out several years ago. So really, really cool stuff. Now, we may see some Devil Dinosaur here on Earth Destruction Directive, uh, you know, because frankly, I control the content, and if I want to do Devil Dinosaur, you better believe we're going to do Devil Dinosaur. So, uh, that's about all I've got for this issue. Like I said, if you've read it, why don't you send in an email? Let me know what you think, because I'm, I'm really interested in what, uh, everybody thinks about this issue and what they're thinking about Godzilla series overall. We're, um, we're more than a third of the, this is starting the, uh, the second, uh, third of the series, because it ran for 24 issues, so we're starting the second third of it now. We're a third of the way through. What do you think? Have you enjoyed it? Has it been better than you remembered? Is it worse than you thought it was going to be? I'm reading these for the first time, so generally I've been pretty happy with them. And uh, I'm looking forward to, to hearing more of it and seeing more of it. So uh, just let me know what you guys think. Or destruction directive at yahoo.com. So uh, right now I'm going to take a quick break and we will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive.
You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Okay, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And it is now time for some listener feedback. And if you would like to send listener feedback to the show, email to earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, as well as a few other places online. So uh, just give a listen to the outro, and you'll find out where to send it. So let's get right into it. Our first email this time out, it comes from Rich S., and is entitled All Caught Up. And Rich writes, Hi, Luke. I just wanted to drop you a line letting you know that this new listener appreciates your show. At the end of last June, I downloaded all of your available podcasts and have just now finished giving them all a listen. Well, Rich, I'm glad you checked the show out, and I appreciate every listener, so thank you very much. Uh, Rich continues, I have to say that I really enjoy how you dissect the shows, comics, and movies featured in your podcast. I especially like the Ultraman episodes and the old Marvel Comics coverage, as it inevitably brings back memories from when I was a kid growing up in the 1970s. The first comic I ever collected was Marvel Godzilla. Very cool. Soon to be followed by Devil Dinosaur, Micronauts, Shogun Warriors, and ROM. Growing up, and even now as an adult to a certain extent, I always gravitated toward the licensed books rather than the standard superhero fare. Ah, the memories. To be in third grade again, telling the whole class that you were peeved by the guy who wrote into issue 7 of Godzilla saying it was stupid. Oh, gosh, yes. To spend Halloween night at a friend's house after trick-or-treating and seeing his new issue of Shogun Warriors number 13. The issue was not available at the local 7-Eleven, but my pal had a subscription, and they sometimes got delivered early that way. To be drawing Ghidorah in art class and, of course, watching Ultraman and Johnny Sacco on the local station's weekdays and the giant monster movies on weekends. The 70s and early 80s were a great time to be a fan of the stuff you feature on EDD. Like yesterday, I still remember the Easter that it rained and I hunted eggs inside the house, only to be later treated to something better that Sunday, seeing Godzilla vs. the Cosmic Monster at the theater. Even the much-criticized Godzilla vs. Megalon has a soft spot in my heart, because I saw that, too, in the local cinema, as Dad slept in the seat next to me. You know, Rich, I've heard a lot of stories, both... uh, Personal anecdotes and people writing articles and such talking about seeing Godzilla versus Megalon in the theater with their, with their dad, almost always their dad, uh, in there with them falling asleep. Uh, that, that the ad campaign for that, I guess it was Cinema Shares that, you know, pushed those two movies, especially Godzilla versus Megalon and Godzilla versus the Cosmic Monster. They, they were just such, so massive and such big successes that lots of people have that stories. And I, 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 I am a little jealous because I was, that was before my time. So I never got that experience, but man, that's, that's just great stuff. Thank you. Let's let, and let me, let me finish up your email here real quick. Anyway, 
thanks for the walk down memory lane. I got out the old Shogun Warriors comics and went through them as you dissected them, and I guess I'll have to get out the Godzilla ones too, even if it means reading that letter from that disgruntled reader again. Thanks, Rich S. Thank Rich, thank you so much. This is a wonderful email. As I said, this was the eighties were a good time for this too, because of the advent of VHS. But uh but I still remember watching not so much Godzilla. You'd see Godzilla more on like TBS or um um, um USA network. But I remember watching Gamera on the you know, the creature features on the weekends a lot. That's where I saw a lot of the a lot of the Gamera films for the first time. And I remember watching, again, watching a lot of these on VHS. That was always my, that's always what I go to in my childhood is watching the Godzilla movies and stuff on VHS. But man, that this, I'm, I'm so glad that the show is, is bringing back good memories for you because, you know, that was the re, one of the reasons that I started the show was that my fandom, my biggest fandom has always been the Japanese monsters and it brings back so many good memories for me on, like you talk about on Easter on a rainy day watching I remember one rainy day was I don't I don't remember where my brother my dad was it was my mom and I and watching Godzilla versus Mothra Godzilla, Godzilla versus the thing you know on my old VHS tape of that on a rainy Saturday and uh, just just things like that that never get taken away from you so and you talk about Marvel Godzilla well one of the first you know serious comics I ever bought and one of my favorite comics of all time is the Godzilla color special from Dark Horse which we've covered on the show previously and I have now signed by Art Adams in my collection. So uh, I I, rec- I I am totally on board with you, and I hope you're still enjoying the show, and I hope you enjoyed this episode since it's an Ultraman and Marvel Godzilla episode. So uh, I hope you in- enjoy it, and I hope you continue listening. Thanks for writing in, Rich. Our next email is from Dion Balisican. I hope I'm saying that right, uh, Balisican, and is entitled Shin Godzilla. And Dion writes, Hi, Luke. I just listened to your quick review of Shin Godzilla and was humored by your genuine excitement and really impressed by your knowledge of Godzilla's history. I'm a long-time listener of the Two True Freaks Network, but to be honest, I have not listened to your show just because I have not watched many of the movies you have reviewed. However, I have listened to your guest appearances on other shows on the Two True Freaks Networks and enjoyed those. Now, I will say this, Dion, flattery will get you everywhere. So, uh... Thank you. <laughs> um, continuing, when I heard the movie would do a limited run in the U.S., I had hoped you would review it so I could hear your opinion of it. I actually saw the movie in Sapporo, Japan on August 11th, my son's 17th birthday, during my family's summer vacation. My son, daughter, and I thought it would be fun to watch a Godzilla movie in Japan on the big screen. The experience was interesting, to say the least, sitting in a theater watching a movie and not understanding a lick of Japanese because it was not dubbed in English or subtitled. The kids were underwhelmed because of the lack of Godzilla destroying Tokyo and the slow pace of the movie, and I had to agree with them. I will say this, though. We are all eager to watch it again with English subtitles this time, and we all caught that there was a deeper meaning being alluded to in the movie regarding Japan's Fukushima disaster and burgeoning militarization. Hope you have an in-depth review of the movie in the future. Regards, Dion, Honolulu, Hawaii. Dion, thank you very much for writing in. That's very cool that you got to watch Shin Godzilla in Japan. I, I, I I got teased with going to Japan once for a project many years ago here at work, and it ended up not happening because I remember thinking, oh man, if I go to Japan, I could probably see a Godzilla movie. I forget what the most recent one was. It might have been Final Wars. It's like, I could probably sink that in somehow. I have to bring a suitcase just for the stuff I'm going to bring back. But anyway, um, yeah, I can, I can see how Shin Godzilla would have been tough 
without any English whatsoever because it's so much of it is plot driven and there is large portions of it that are character and, and story driven rather than action driven. That's still a cool story that no one's ever going to be able to take away from you. So I think that's pretty neat right there that you saw a Godzilla movie on the big screen in Japan. So uh, more power to you. As far as doing an in-depth review, I absolutely want to do one. Uh, right now, my plan is I need to watch it again. So I am I'm really waiting until we get a release on DVD or Blu-ray here in the States, or at least one that I can, you know, maybe it's an international one that I can watch because I'm not big into pirating stuff. And so, you know, I, I paid my money to see it. I watched it in the theater. I gave my reviews from that. So once I can get another copy of it to watch, yeah, I think we'll do uh, an episode devoted to a more in-depth review of, of Shin Godzilla. I think that's absolutely in the cards. And hopefully that'll be soon. I have not seen any news about a, uh, a home media release of the film here in the states, but um, I'm hoping now that uh, now that the award season is is winding down, we might get something out of that. So hope you continue listening and uh, keep enjoying Two True Freaks and uh, send more email if you like or don't like what you're hearing. Thank you very much, Dion. And our last email today is from a uh, friend of the show and new multiple emailer, John Kilgallen, and John writes. Uh, with the subject Ultraman in Charleston. Luke just finished listening to Earth Destruction Direct- Directive episode 51, another excellent play-by-play of Marvel's Godzilla number 7. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Responding to your question in the feedback segment about Ultraman on Charleston, South Carolina TV. In the early 70s, a local TV station, WCSC-TV Channel 5, played Ultraman every weekday, 3.30 p.m. The show was part of the station's after-school children's programming. Let me jump out of the... Remember that? Remember there was children's shows on after school and not just talk shows and court shows? Man, even as late as I was in college, I remember that. I I digress. It followed the Happy Rain Show, which was an original, long-running local children's program hosted by Lorraine Evans. She presented herself as a Native American through the years. Not sure if you are familiar with that. That's before my time in South Carolina. I'm going to look that up, though. That does sound pretty interesting. I'm always kind of fascinated by those local television things. I remember one, I can't remember before the life of me what it was called, but there was one that was out of uh, one of the one of the stations we got out of Danbury, Connecticut. I think it was Channel 21, and they had an afternoon kids show with, um, you know, a uh, it was it was with a a, a a woman, a young woman, and a, a yellow monster, uh, like monster Muppet, that was her partner. I always remember that image, but I don't remember anything about like what it was called or whatnot. So, I'm 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 there with you. So, uh, John continues. After that, for years, I always thought there was only one Ultraman series. Channel surfing cable TV one night, I stumbled upon Ultra Seven on TNT, and out came my VHS blank tapes to capture that series. After that, like Godzilla, all things Ultraman became an obsession. Yep, I was there with TNT, too. The hunts for model kits and figures, bootleg tapes, and eventually the Malaysian DVD releases were both great fun and frustrating as heck. It was so bad, I made Chicago a honeymoon destination, with the first stop being a Japanese toy store where I picked up a three-foot-tall Ultraman figure with sound and lights that responded to a beta capsule passing over his color timer. A fond memory for me, but one my now ex-wife, after 21 years, never failed to bring up in conversation from a completely different perspective. Wow. Dude, awesome. That's all I gotta say about that. I mean, 
and I, I'm not going to comment on, you know, uh, on ex-wives or anything like that, but, you know, my wife is not into the stuff that I'm into, but she tolerates it, and as long as, you know, we're not, I don't go too crazy with it, she's usually on board, but that is cool, that sounds awesome. I'd love, I'm going to see if I can find some pictures of that online, because that sounds really cool, that sounds like something that'd be a nice showcase piece to have in your man cave amongst all your other tokusatsu stuff. Holidays are marathons now, and I'm thinking this Christmas we will be binge-watching Ultraman Orb on Crunchyroll and my Ultraman 80 DVD set. In closing, Merry Christmas to you and yours, Luke, and hope you have a stomping New Year, signed John. And this did come in about uh, a little bit before Christmas, so that's where the Christmas stuff. So I hope you had a Merry Christmas also, and I hope, uh, John, and I hope you got to watch your your monsters <laughs> uh, during your holiday. I always associate Christmas time with monsters anyway, just because as a kid, a lot of times I'd get um, movies for Christmas. I remember the one Christmas that I got, the last couple that I was missing, Godzilla vs. Gigan, Godzilla's Revenge, and a few others. So I always kind of associate them uh, with the holiday season. Um, I'm, uh, that's cool about the, the local Charleston TV. It's always interesting for that kind of stuff with me. I don't know where or on what station Ultraman aired in New York because it was, again, it was done by the time I was a kid. But I'm guessing it probably would have been WPIX. That's where pretty much everything aired in, in New York, Channel 11. So thank you very much for that info, John. That was really good stuff, and I really appreciate that. And that story about the three-foot-tall Ultraman on your on your honeymoon is fantastic. I cannot imagine how big that box was. That's all i got to say about that. <laughs> thank you very much, and uh, please write in. Let me know what you think about the show. And uh, That plea goes out to everybody. If you like what I'm doing on the show, don't like what I'm doing on the show, please send me an email. Because uh, as a podcaster, I appreciate every email that I get. And this is truly a labor of love. And uh, we do this so that for you guys and hope that you enjoy what we're doing. So uh, thank you, everyone, for writing in. All right. It's come now to that time in the show where we ask, what are we going to be doing next time? And, well, next time we are leading up to not only the release of Skull Island, but also at the uh, towards the end of March we're leading up to release of the new Power Rangers movie so we are going to be taking a look at the original Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the movie and I'm going to be bringing a guest star along with me someone who asked me if he uh, if I was going to cover uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the movie many years ago and we're finally getting around to doing it so I'm going to make that leave that as a surprise for you guys to try and figure out who my guest is going to be uh, but that is what we're going to be covering next time we're going to give Marvel Godzilla a break for an episode and just focus on, you know, six teenagers with attitudes defending Angel Grove from the evil Ivan Ooze. I hope you guys will check that out. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. I want to thank everyone again for downloading and listening. Uh, if you'd like, please send some feedback. That's always appreciated. And until next time, keep them stomping.
This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.